0: Hey, everybody, welcome back to The podcast, where I bring you the best and brightest from the world of business, marketing, and personal growth to help you harness your inner tenacity and drive your career forward. My guest today, Matt Higgins, is an operator, investor, an overall business builder, not to mention reality TV star and co-shark on ABC's the Shark Tank. Matt has worked with some of the top names in business, entertainment, sports, and even politics. And he started his career at 16 after dropping out of high school and grinding until he was personally selected by Rudy Giuliani, To become the youngest press secretary in the history of new york city and not long after the tragic events of 9 11 unraveled and higgins was thrust into the position of coordinating the global press response in the coming months since then matt has worked on the reconstruction efforts at the world trade center the memorial held executive seats with the new york jets and currently with the miami dolphins founded rse ventures investment firm and partnered with Gary Vaynerchuk on the Vayner Media Empire. And Matt has spanned an incredible spread of different careers and has seen immense success as well as tribulations throughout his life. I'm excited to unpack his career and set the stage for him to share his wisdom. Folks, without further ado, Matt Higgins. Matt Higgins, welcome to the podcast, my man. Thank you so much for making the time to join me today.
1: All right. Thank you for having me. All right. Awesome. Fellas. Long Island. I can say I'm from Long Island too, because Queens is technically on Long Island. It's connected. It's part of the same island. It is. It is. Although we growing up in Queens, we would resent Long Island. Like that was how the other half lived. So just full, <laughs> full disclosure. But
0: I, great. I, felt, I felt it, man. I hey, listen. I moved from Brooklyn. I moved from Brooklyn to Long Island, and I felt it right away. And I, I was like, Oh, who's this kid coming in in the middle of seventh grade from Brooklyn? He must be tough. And I'm like, Hey. I'm just a little Jewish kid from Brooklyn. Like, I'm not I'm not the tough guy. So let, let's jump in here. We're recording the show on the 10th day of November. It was an absolutely insane weekend for many different reasons. First of all, it was like 75 degrees. I don't know about you. I felt a weight lifted off my chest this weekend. I felt like it was just a breath of fresh air. And I typically start every show talking about my guest's past. We talk about the origin story. But let's talk about the 2020 election for a moment, if you don't mind. And in 2016, you came out and you endorsed, and you're a Republican, correct me if I'm wrong, and you endorsed Clinton, and it didn't even matter about taxation, because it was really important was preserving the republic. And I believe you had a similar position this time around. As much as you'd like to share, I'd love to hear your thoughts on what transpired in the last couple of weeks.
1: Yeah, that's that's amazing that you dug that up, actually, because I was looking for context for everybody listening in the last election, and I was listening to the heated rhetoric from Trump and just him that time when he mocked the reporter with a disability and what he was talking about that judge, you know, Mexican descent. And I remember I had grown up sort of come of age in the Republican party. I had uh, worked with Mitt Romney and John McCain and and uh, early days uh I was Giuliani's press secretary, a different era, full disclosure. We'll but, get to uh, that. We'll get to that. But um I was listening to this rhetoric and thinking, like, there's no way I can justify this to my son. And by being a member of the party, I'm effectively endorsing it. I don't, I don't stand And what I, what I thought was dangerous at the time, you would hear a lot of people, supposedly experts, saying, it doesn't matter. He's not going to win. Like, you know, he's a clown, whatever. And I'm, I'm like, that's always the most dangerous place to be, where, where you know, people are motivated by the idea that, well, that person's not going to get elected. But they don't really particularly support Hillary Clinton either. And I thought it was incumbent upon me to set an example to actually get involved, put myself in harm's way. So I so I walked into the campaign headquarters in Brooklyn I said, you know, I'm I'm here. I want to help uh, Hillary Clinton get elected, principally motivated by Donald Trump not getting elected, but also I think she'd do a fine job. And I went out there and did a bunch of interviews where I kept saying over and over again, um, you know, sometimes uh, we all have a hierarchy of ideology, right? Where some things matter more to us. And for me, I said the preservation of the republic of the United States is way more important than taxation or anything else. And I remember some said, geez, very loaded land, preservation of the Republic. You really think that's at stake? And I said, I 100% th- th- think that's at stake because throughout history, people who behave inappropriately or break a seal on on societal norms, they always tell you in advance what they plan to do. Nothing that's happened in the they last- telegraph it. Has yeah. been a surprise unless you decide to put your head in the sand. And so, I don't know, I got, I got involved.
0: I hear you, man. And the other, I was talking to my wife the other day, and we we had this conversation in the car. Trump is the most authentic president, politician we've ever had. He is what you get. What you see is what you get. Like, there's no faking it. There's no you know, career politician there. He says
1: it. He means it. He does it. And, like, you got to give the guy a little bit of credit when it comes down right. to the authenticity, whether, oh, whether you love it or not. You know, I'm a student of political science, whatever. You look throughout history, any kind of demagogue will always forecast exactly what they plan to do. You know, so – Nothing he did was a surprise. You have to give him some credit for being, you know, consistent. <laughs> so, so anyway, I, I just felt very passionate that I need to model out to my kids and to myself. So, throughout uh, for time immemorial, I would know that I stood up and spoke out. So, like you, I have a great weight off my shoulders and like think this is a chance for a reset in America, which I'm really excited about.
0: Yeah, and it's tough though. But I really and and we we, we forget too a lot. There's 70 million people. 77 million people voted for for. Uh, biden 70 million people voted for there's still a lot of people that voted for trump and they're upset they're sour too and not all of them but like we, we the hard work is now i mean we're talking about like you yeah, know.
1: and i think look, you look We have to return to a place where you're allowed to have a difference of opinion one of the problems where the pendulum switched too far in the other direction is that anybody who supported donald trump was completely shamed and that's that's uh, i was groupthink is terrific when you agree with the thing you're supposed to agree with you know but it, when, when groups on the other think, side man. when you're on the other side and you have a fascist group think Or you're being ostracized because you're standing up for somebody's human rights or civil rights who's an ostracized group. Oh, then it's not so great anymore. So I'm always very nervous about being shamed into one viewpoint or another. So that being said, I think we need to respect the fact that 70 million people, for whatever reason, disagreed. uh, But we need to cast a, a wider net. Somehow or other. I know right at the moment that's just empty words. I know that. But because we we'll do need there. we need a period where we just need to chill the F out and and, and take the temperature down. Maybe we can put politics <laughs> off the front page for a bit. Right. Like let's, let's get just, back to COVID. Let's get back to
0: this COVID thing, right? right. That we're, right. That we're, that exactly. we're
1: back. It's been kind of a traumatic period. Maybe we could just have a little bit of a break, you know?
0: Yeah. So. I mean, there's bright news on the horizon. I mean, the
1: perfectly timed Pfizer announcement, perfectly timed, you know, they they, right. they, they and look, we have it. we have you know the first female vice president. It's an interesting yeah. how every crisis always births something amazing, right? And now yeah. we have uh, Kamala, and we have we have a nice president. He's a nice guy. Whatever you think of Joe Biden, I mean, he seems like a fundamentally decent human being who's given a lot of himself to public service. So, like, just you know, cut him some slack. To cool. to see how it goes.
0: Let's let's roll with this. So let's switch gears. Let's hit the rewind button here. And how I start off every show, I love to so unpack. One
1: more point, since we're on the record now. One more point. I was very passionate about Mayor Pete. I got very involved with mayor Pete I you know maxed out on the fundraising side I went to a couple of events so I think we'll be seeing mayor Pete and you know and number of years eight or twelve or, or something like that uh, is, I, he
0: gonna, is, is he gonna get a cabinet position I I, I,
1: really? I I bet that he would get a cabinet position maybe Veterans Affairs or uh, he, I'm sure he'd love the UN because that's how you can go ahead and prove your Foreign, uh, international uh, your, your international chops, right? But one way or another, Mayor Pete is brilliant, a fundamentally decent human being. Oh, he's great. I think so. I just want to be on the record, Adam. So when we kind of pull this up from the archives.
0: The time capsule, my friend. Yeah, That's exactly. what I love about this show. It's a time capsule. So we're going we're gonna to hit the rewind button here and let's bring everyone back. Let's bring everyone back to Bayside, Queens. And you've had an incredible transformation where you're able to manifest your dreams growing up, you know. I, I, do I use the word poor, you know, single family mm-hmm. household?
1: Dirt poor, I prefer. I mean, if yeah, dirt, want to be dirt like, poor,
0: you know, single parent household.
1: Also more accurate.
0: <laughs> Bay- Bayside Queens all the way to the boardroom and you've been everyone in between. We'll dig into the career journey in a little bit. And it's been nothing but easy. And you talk a lot about, you know, in the early days, your early family life primed you for a lot of these obstacles you were going to face later on. What were some of those challenges? And, you know, looking back, what were some of those big lessons that you learned from the childhood?
1: Well, I think probably this is a little bit um, you know abstract, but bear with me for a second. I think probably the most important lesson that I learned at the youngest age uh, possible at 16 was that uh, you have to be really careful whose, whose advice you take because it's usually lacking in context, right? So what I mean in my situation, I was uh, growing up relatively desperate. I had a mother who was increasingly disabled. I was sleeping on a floor on a mattress. No one had ever even come over to my house as a kid. the most part. I lived in shame. And then, of course, as a kid, you're trying to cover that up. I was wearing at the time guest jeans, whatever, anything to make myself not look poor while selling flowers and handbags on the street. Uh, And yet I had a vision when I was pretty young saying, OK, on the one hand, if I don't get out of poverty as fast as possible, my mother's going to deteriorate. And by the way, I hate this life and I'm very depressed and I could see myself being reckless at some point. Right. Just self-destructive. On the other hand, there's a loophole where I could drop out of high school at age 16 and I could get my G.D., and I can get to college as fast as humanly possible. And once I'm in college, I can go from making three seventy-five dollars at McDonald's or $5 at a deli overnight in Queens to making $9, $10 an hour simply by enrolling in college. And I remember talking to the teachers and at Cardoza High School and my guidance counselor who all saw my potential and you know intellect, whatever. You're going to be branded a loser forever. Like you're going to throw your life away. I remember thinking, I could probably clean this up. <laughs> if I have enough time, I could explain away this decision. But why would I sit here for the next several years and languish in these terrible circumstances? So around the age of, I guess it was around 14, I said, I really need to give myself no option but to make this dramatic move. So I got wow. left, I got left back every year and stayed in the same class for two and a half years, you know, just you know, truants and kids with beepers and just getting left back. And because then it would give me no option but to burn the boats and, and, and go all in.
0: But let's talk about that, that decision to drop out of high school back then when it was incredibly more scrutinized. Yeah. Right? I mean, what, what was that decision like?
1: It was a hard decision because I saw an opening, right? Back up for a second. Like, the most of the rules of life and conventional wisdom – are are designed and constructed for the average situation, right? So, what's the average situation? Yeah, you, know, you have two parents, or at least one functioning parent. You probably have enough to eat at night, right? Like, so those that make sense. Do four years of high school, you know, apply. Yay, I got into SUNY Binghamton or wherever the hell you're going, right? They're not Soon meant. The for, they're not meant for a kid that at age 11 was basically socialized to be a parent, right? I was basically a parent. Sorry, you had to take, take care me. of yourself. I had to take care of myself, so. You know, it's important, I say this to everybody, you have to assess the rules that govern you to decide, are those rules really meant to aid you, or are they meant to inhibit your growth? Not that you need to be a rule breaker, you need to challenge conventional wisdom. So dropping out was the hardest thing I ever did, but actually the best decision I ever made, because it accelerated my development by, you know, so dramatically, right? I mean, by the time I was 19 years old, I was working at a newspaper, writing investigative articles. By the time I was 20, I'd been nominated for a Pulitzer Prize by Carl Bernstein. Like it, it, it accelerated my growth. And I always say Warren, Bourne, uh, Warren Buffett talks about compounding, right? Compounding is one of the greatest ideas. Compounding implies your professional success too. The sooner you start, the harder you hit it, the more you have, more years you have to benefit from it.
0: That's a big one there. Did you always have the journalism bug? Where'd that come from?
1: Uh, you know, like again, when you're, when you're desperate, you reach for whatever God gave you. And God gave me the ability to communicate and write. And that's how I got the first job. My first big boy job was to work at Congressman Gary Gary Ackerman's office in Queens. And that was, I, I got the job because I was a college student, I was only 16. They hired a bunch of kids to hand out flyers and sign people up on petitions for the summer. After the primary was over, they got rid of everybody except one kid and that was me. And they, awesome. kept me and they kept me because I kind of bullshitted my way into knowing how to do mail merge on computers. But I also could write, you know, like I just whatever had the gift. And writing, I keep a typewriter on my computer, on my desk from a hundred years ago, um, just to remind me that that's the thing that got me to it. where I am today. And and you lean on the skills you have, and that skill just came in my factory settings.
0: That's amazing. It's kind of funny, too. It's kind of a badge of honor. I, I remember I learned how to type in Brooklyn Middle schools on a typewriter. And I always tell my daughter that I'm like, I learned how to type on a typewriter. I think that's side note completely. What's interesting about, you know, my yeah. generation, our generation is like that. We bridge that gap, that technology gap. We remember VCRs with wide remotes. We Remember when HBO was a little box with this with the with the switch on it. But, but I'm,
1: uh, I'm fascinated, though. So just pause on that. <laughs> Kids are gonna have to say the same sentence that you just said about things that we right now seem pretty innovative. I remember we used to use this thing called like Snapchat where oddly we would take photos of crap and send it to each other in order to communicate. And that was before there were holograms of ourselves. Exactly. Living rooms like, you, know, <laughs> you it, what's great about life is you know that both you and the things around you will be rendered obsolete one day by your successor. I'm always fascinated by that idea.
0: I'm also fascinated when I say things like that. I really sound like an old man. And more and more, I sound like my dad. Yeah, I say, no. My dad jokes come. I say things like my dad. My wife looks at me. She's like, that's something your dad would say. I'm like, okay, no. that's not a bad thing to happen. I like my dad. He's a good guy.
1: You start to accept it too peacefully. You're like, <laughs> okay, whatever. I'm a curmudgeon. You know, I don't like the way these young kids behave. I hate TikTok, you know, whatever, like so, whatever it is.
0: So let's talk a little bit about Rudy G. Like, right? this is a Rudy G before the four seasons landscaping. This is a Rudy G before he went off the off the deep end. Let's remember, Rudy G Broke down the freaking mafia. I love watching all those documentaries. Rudy G is a badass back in the day. Um, take what you want from him, cleaning up New York City and everything. How'd you get involved with uh with Giuliani?
1: Yeah, I uh I was uh was a muckraker reporter for this little newspaper called the queen's tribune. And the daily news did a big profile on me uh, when I was a kid. And I was talking about how, what I did like about the administration is how they, they, they believe that um, that the killing of effect of small problems is really big problems. Right. And if you can attack the small problems, quality of life problems, eventually you can kind of maintain order and improve quality of life. And the the theory made total sense. And so I I was quoted in an article and they reached out to me and I transitioned to working as a, as like, a, I don't know, I probably was like 22. My job was to get up at 430 in the morning and and put together the media clips into like a packet and then deliver it around City Hall. But
0: physical packet.
1: But, but, you know, funny. once again, it was communications and writing that they noticed. And like very early on, you know, like, oh, this kid can write. And I started writing all sorts of things on behalf of the mayor and then I would leverage that skill to be promoted pretty quickly. If I didn't get what I'd want, I'd quit. And then I'd come back. I quit twice, by the way. Another lesson is just because if I didn't get what I wanted, I would quit and I'd come back.
0: Interesting. <laughs> and, they, and they take you back. So let's rewind to September yep. 11th, 2001. Where were you physically that morning?
1: Well, t- uh, that day was uh, primary day in New York, right? This was the end of the administration. People, had, Tuesday, had, enough, right? people had had more than enough of, uh, of Rudy. And so I was making my way to wherever the polling site was. And then that's when the entire highway just came alive with sirens. And i made my way to the uh, world trade center site and actually i was standing underneath the towers after the second plane had hit and uh, a couple blocks away i was setting up a press conference and there was nobody around like there were columns of firefighters rushing towards the building and everyone else had scrambled and i'm standing there with a couple of colleagues just trying to set up a a presser unable to reach the mayor saying this just makes no sense like because that was always the the mo was to you know be present show up on the scene let people know that the government's yeah, in charge which that works in typical circumstances but i literally was standing up thinking like i can't even conceive what i'm seeing during those you know those those 15 20 minutes and i was making my way back to city hall to try to figure out where the mayor was when the when the uh, towers collapsed And so for that for those few minutes this big cloud comes down broadway i can't really see that it's the fact that the the that the genesis is that the tower has collapsed all I see is a cloud, and we in the crowd believe that's sarin gas is coming our way or anthrax. You, know, you just don't know. And, and I, remember, all I remember, and remember all these rocks and everything just overtake us. I was on the ground like retching. Everybody was like retching, thinking like, "Are we dying?" You know, at this moment. And then oh you realized, okay, that's I don't know what that was. And then you begin to put the pieces together again.
0: Did but, you did you truly think at that moment you were going to die? What was it like? Did you really have that moment? Like this is I the last breath I'm going to take in life. life?
1: I had that, you know, that that a kind of panic that you don't know what it's like until you experience like a caged animal, you know, where life is about to be squeezed out of you because you're breathing in this material and you, you know, your mind thinks it's gas, right? Because you know, you're under attack. So it's a, a logical thing to think that cloud of, of mind is a bomb and everybody rumors are, and everyone's screaming and then you're overtaken by it. And, but, it but, but, you know, 30 seconds later, you're like, okay, I'm still here. That was debris from the building. I cannot believe that the World Trade Center has just collapsed. And the,
0: the, the thought process, all those things that are just happening uh, right now. interesting
1: when you're, when you're in government, <clears throat> there is a degree of sacrifice where you're like, all right, I'm meant to be on the front line. Like, get get your get yourself together, and then right away went into trying to figure out where where the mayor was, where everyone was. And as I was walking uh, north on Broadway, uh, I was able to contact the mayor's folks who were walking one block over, and we met at a firehouse. And I'll never forget the scene. I walk into the fire station and all the gear on all the walls is gone. Uh, the fire commissioner at the time, Tommy Van Essen, is sitting on the floor and his hands are in his face and he's crying. And the mayor is in an office with his chief of staff. They're on the phone with the White House screaming, we need air cover. Because, again, you don't know what's going on. We didn't
0: know if there's more attacks. Yeah,
1: fire jets flying over. And uh, it was just like, what is going on? This is only an hour into it. You know, you're sort of in a fog of war. And then I... I I spent every day of my life, every waking moment, for two years at Ground Zero. Decided I wasn't going to leave until we had a plan. I moved my apartment to the site. I sat right on wow. the site. I've got an apartment on the top because I became the employee number two or whatever of the new federal agency designed to rebuild the Trade Center site. And I just said, I'm just going to sit right here and walk through those that that debris and do whatever is necessary until we're back on our feet. You know, I, I tend to be a little belligerent, so I was like, all right, <laughs> this is going to be my life now. You know, as long as it takes.
0: Did you did you get sick at all? Any any lasting health effects, problems?
1: You know, I had I don't talk about this a lot because I I I I, I remember a, I had a friend of mine, Paula Perry, who lost her husband at the site, and I watched her raise her three little boys without a dad. And a few years a few years after the attacks, I ended up with testicular cancer. And I remember going and I was only 32 years old. And I remember, I remember going to see her It's so strange. I said, I just want to go for a walk with you to remind myself just how bad life can really be. Like, so I have cancer, you know, you, I had these extra years that you didn't have with your husband your husband never got a chance. So no matter what happens to me going forward, this was literally the day after I was diagnosed a couple of days. I just wanted to remind myself like these years That's that I had, other people didn't get these years. So don't ever feel sorry for yourself. So wow. And I, I, I still feel that way, like, hey, whatever happened, you know, I had testicular cancer, had all sorts of, you know, hormonal issues and stuff like that that come from it. But I didn't die that day. And so I'm very sensitive about associating the two, if that makes sense. I feel for anyone who's gone through it. But but uh, <clears throat> so I saw when Paul had to raise these beautiful little boys by herself. I'm like, you know, life turned out okay for you.
0: I, I appreciate you sharing that with all of us. I really, I really do. And it, it really just gives perspective. And that was insane. So let's talk about the recovery efforts, which you were, yeah. you know, a big part of there. What was it like to, like, be influential on what the future was going to look like? The the site, the, you know, paying homage and, and proper respect to those who lost their lives and something to yeah. leave as a legacy. What was that like?
1: I mean, the whole thing was just crazy. I mean, in the period right after the attack, think about these different phases I went through. Phase number one is recovery and healing, but also Bringing every world leader and uh, to the site. You, know, I you walked, brought Putin there. You brought Putin there, right? I brought Putin, I brought Putin there. I brought the Emir of Qatar. I brought the President of every single, you know, uh, site, and it was all to build support for the revolution, Right. You, I mean, like, whether whether you know, forget about the Iraq War. Remember, we still had Afghanistan. Yeah, we, and we were so in we a war. We going to take care of Al Qaeda. So part of the job was to bring <clears> everyone, show them just what happened. Right. It's very easy to rationalize death and destruction. Uh, When you're a world leader, if you hit, if you don't see it, but when you take people to see it and you see the carnage, it's, it's hard to resist. And so part of that effort in those first three months was building support to use bases. And then, then it was like, like we're New Yorkers, right? So it doesn't take long before all the solidarity and the, and the Budweiser commercials that are bringing everybody together, fade wears off. And then suddenly we're, you know, fighting. So the mandate was relatively impossible. You had 16 acres that all had to do, so much mm-hmm. on behalf of the United States. It had to memorialize those we lost. It was also the final resting ground for people who hadn't even been identified yet, right? It also was the heartbeat of the city and a financial capital of the world where people had a claim to rebuild 10 million square feet of commercial space. So you had all these conflicting impulses and you had Giuliani on the one hand saying the whole 16 acres should be a memorial. You had a lot of family members who felt the same way. Then you had the responsibility to build a memorial that my little boy who wasn't born yet, could go to the site one day and have a general sense of what happens. So I spent a lot of time with with our team traveling the country looking at memorials that did stand the test of time and those that didn't.
0: And which ones inspired you?
1: Uh, Vietnam War no doubt, uh, memorial because and we put Maya Lynn on the jury actually because she went through a lot of similar things. It was it was rejected at first. There was an attempt to actually, you know, that people wanted a literal memorial like a lot of the other memorials had been. But what I found was what we found and anybody who studies memorials understand the more literal a memorial is the more likely it is to be forgotten over time okay. when the next generation comes and so uh i think where we ended up was perfect. is perfect it's footprint probably,
0: the footprint the reflections, it was, the reflections as honestly,
1: it was probably the most proudest project i've ever been associated with not because of the enormity of it too but because of the wisdom of the decision we created a jury of When Paula Granberry was actually the family member on the jury, we created the jury of people of the right mindset, ran the largest design competition in history. And we chose a memorial Mm -hmm. that will preserve the footprint. So when my son walks up there and sees that one acre void is where a building that was 100 plus stories, 110 stories, is now gone and receded into the ground with 3,000 souls lost their lives. That memorial will be emotionally resonant 100 years from now. Because you can visualize
0: it. You can visualize the space, how much space it took up. It's there, it's a footprint.
1: But then what I also love about the site, and this is something that then people didn't really grasp because there were those, this memorial is shameful because it doesn't have a resilient symbol. And then the building, people like the building, they didn't realize that one day it would all read as one composition. So the memorial is then juxtaposed with a 1776 tall tower that told Al-Qaeda.
0: The big middle finger.
1: Big middle finger, right. And I was, and, but you know, what's interesting about that project too is like when you were going through it and you were getting your head kicked in, you just had to say, it's not about now, it's about 20 years from now. Like History will judge this project kindly. Also, your feelings are irrelevant. You are an asterisk on history. It's a business, a service to the city and to the country. So who cares how you feel? And you will never be recognized. The work will never be, you know what I'm saying? Like it'll stand for itself. And it's also nice to be associated with something like that too, where you can almost suspend the, you're taking all hits in every direction Just say, like, it'll work out over time and that's okay.
0: Yeah. And and, and a little footnote there. I I was lucky enough. I was working at American Express across the street, 2010, 2011. My first day working there, 44th floor, I walked all the way over. My desk was looking out the window on top of the World Trade Center site, and my heart dropped because it was the perspective that I got from 44 floors up. The building was about a third of the way done. The footprint was there. They were building it out, and I just lost my breath. And every day I got to watch this, and it was inspiring to me. Well, what's
1: so the main thing about the building that you were in, uh, there's the – the I think it's called it got- the Water Garden, right? Yes. That's where we would do the unveiling of all the plans or the palm trees in between. In the middle, yep. Oh, my God. I would spend all day and night you know, doing these massive press conferences to roll out the plans. And a lot of it, too, was keeping people – positively oriented that we're making progress and then there was unrealistic expectations like how is it possible this is going to take you know 20 years it's like well that's what, unfortunately that's what it does take you know okay. to build all those buildings
0: I, I deeply appreciate this part of the conversation and i really wasn't imagining going this far but it's absolutely been incredible so let's shift gears let's talk a little okay. bit about business let's go about sports and entrepreneurship there absolutely. yeah i, I had a terrible transition but i gotta do this as no, a okay. host. No, so his- wait, quick question though first qu- uh, queen's guy Who's your baseball team? Mets. Steve Cohen. Like, yeah. Like, is, is this the legacy for my kids? Like, I, I right. it was another. It was another like redeeming moment of 2020. And it, the papers got signed. And I have hope as a Mets fan. I am a. I have. I have chairs from City from Shea Stadium sitting in my den. They're my prized possession. I have hope for this franchise.
1: I mean, I I go back to you know again growing up poor in Queens. Like, I could sit in those bleacher seats for five six bucks. Jose Okendo, Junior Ortiz, <laughs> Mike Jorgensen. I can, there we go. I, I can rattle off that team, but I have to say I'm 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 good friends with uh, Jeff Wilpon, and I will whatever you say about the Wilpons, they really cared and really tried, so it's so it's easy to vilify. But so I'm not I, saying anything. No, no, you're not. I'm just saying to anybody <laughs> listening, I uh, just think they're. But I am there's excited.
0: a lot to the story. There's a lot to like the people. They only see the 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 bad right. news, the schemes, and right. and the, and all the other stuff. So so and we're not going to call them the coupons. I I always laugh when I hear that. That's kind of funny too. So I mean, football. what about
1: who's your, well? I know you're a Jets guy. I grew up with the Jets. I was a group loving the, the the Dolphins. Believe it or not, as a kid, right? You know, Super Duper and, and and like uh, playing throwing the ball around. Dan Marino in the uh, you know, early '80s.
0: So you grew up as a Jets fan. You grew up as a Dolphins fan, and now you're literally yeah. sitting on the board of
1: these two companies. What the hell is that like, man? Surreal, know, right? It is definitely. I, I always say I was the accidental sports executive, but but the, but the remember, my path into sports was actually through development. I mean, the Jets hired me because they wanted somebody who could reconcile the, all these different issues to help build them their own stadium. So I presided over what can only be described as a war with uh, Cablevision and Madison Square Garden to try to build a stadium on the west side. And when the Olympics got it, close, it, it got close. It got right to one the boat. Olympics,
0: Right with the Olympics. Right. It was a close. It yeah. was a whole thing. Yeah.
1: yeah. And then Shelly Silver. Voted it down. You know, that didn't work out so great over time for him, but he, uh, we, uh, we, built yeah, look it. at him
0: now. Where's he yeah, behind yep, me? Yeah. Yep,
1: yep, yep. yep. I wish nobody ill, but, you know, it is what it is. And then we built a new stadium in the Meadowlands. So that's how I got into sports, frankly. Uh, but as a kid growing up and working all the time, it wasn't like sports was a huge part of my life. Uh, like I was just trying to survive, you know? And so I wasn't, you know, a huge, huge sports fan.
0: Um, Yeah, man. So what, you know, listen, we're going to get into a little entrepreneurship stuff here, but like what separates RSC apart from other VC firms?
1: I think, uh, I just talk about what we, what, what makes us special. I think is uh, Steve Ross is a builder at the end of the day. We always says we're not investors. It's like, well, we're technically are we're writing checks, but we, um, we both build things. I mean, he's one of the most creative dynamic entrepreneurs in the country. Forget I did get about- to
0: meet him once with Gary during my time.
1: Yeah, no, yeah, Gary. Right. And so, so I think <clears throat> what's different is my bias is to build. My inclination is to create and not, not to passively invest. And I've done it alongside our founders. So in other words, We've incubated businesses from scratch. We have incubated the largest privately owned soccer tournament on earth. It is a complicated, painful, distressing business where I've had to travel the world to help put this together. And we've got an amazing CEO and Danny Sillman doing the work. Um, I, we know how to build. And so people will say that, but there's a difference when you have somebody on your cap table who's a builder and an operator. It's just different than having somebody who's only always been an investor, right? So it makes me very empathetic. And I always like to say like, If there's a train coming, I'll do my best for both of us to get out of the way. But if not, well, you know, I'll hold your hand. (laughs) We're we're gonna go down together. You know what I mean? You know? Yeah,
0: totally. So, side note: I mean, I saw a post from you a few of a couple months ago. How much you how much you miss travel? But on the flip
1: side of that, is it nice to just take a pause? Oh, so nice. I mean, I like. I don't think we need to pretend. First of all, we have one obligation: is to survive this pandemic and be optimistic and get ourselves together. You know, so, so to be shamed into being like, it's all bad. Nothing's all bad or all good in life. Right. So I didn't realize how much I was agonizingly missing my children. I mean, I know this, but I didn't really know how much it actually affects my, my emotional health to be able to have my little boy come up and be like, Hey dad, can I interrupt? I have a question, Uh, you know, in my homework. Like it's amazing to be around
0: me anytime you want.
1: Right. And, and I, I am definitely, I find myself playing offense more than I used to play defense more I'm awesome. able to get the rhythm of my day I, I get up usually around 4 30 five o'clock and I'm able to establish my priorities as opposed to someone everyone else established my priorities and I've been that's actually cool. a lot more productive than I've ever been before uh because I, I only do what matters now and I don't do stuff that's nonsense you know it's, it's interesting there's been like a kind of a culling of the stuff that's irrelevant um, that's- The travel I miss just from the, the serendipity of discovery but I'm happy to be home.
0: So quick note, because I got to cover it off. You know, Gary V. how did that relationship start?
1: So Gary Vee, uh, he's a huge Jets fan, as you were aware. And in 2009, I was running the the, the business of the team or whatever I was doing at that point. But I, I maybe the sales operation and one of my sales guys, Jeff Fernandez, Jeff, if you're out there, uh, is like, you know, this guy, Gary's a huge fan. He owns WineLibrary.com. He's got the money. He's gonna buy a suite. I was like, he's not buying a suite, and he doesn't have the money. But he's like, no, no, no. Go <laughs> ahead. You know, and I'm like, you know, when you when you're overseeing a sales operation, like sometimes you gotta, you know, you gotta roll up your sleeves and sort of do the work. So I go out to Springfield, New Jersey, to get a bagel with this guy Gary Gary, you know, sitting in this bagel store. And you know, first ten minutes, I'm like, this guy's like batshit crazy, like just It's <laughs> like, like, all over. And he does not have the money to buy a suite. But in the second ten minutes, I always say it's like. I started like listening thinking, you know, when you sort of pull away some of the theatrics, he started making predictions about where the world was going, how by virtue of the smartphone, every human on earth is going to be a con- combination of Comcast and HBO. They're going to be their own content creators. And as a result, Twitter is just the beginning. These big, you know, companies are like battleship carriers, they won't be able to keep up with the ever-changing landscape, and content has now been democratized, and there's a room for a new agency that'll be social media focused, digital first. And me and my little brother, AJ, are going to do it. We're going to crush it, whatever. And I'm at the Jets thinking, huh, like, this guy Gary could probably make me, like, the executive who gets it. <laughs> like, I could tap into the brain. What if we do a deal? And at that bagel store, we cut a deal that if he could take one Jets player and really kind of put him on the map and amplify his presence, that – and it worked. I would give him four Jets tickets to become the first client of VaynerMedia. I love this story, man. And then we went to we went to Serenade, I believe, in uh, Summit, New Jersey, with Kerry Rhodes, the safety and he laid a media plan for Kerry. And the rest is history. And uh, you know, I went back with Steve Ross. We went and we acquired uh, almost 40% of the firm. And now what I love about life, so here I am in a bagel store, this kid, Gary. And it's an important story, by the way, because a lot of other people who met him in my world passed on writing a check because they couldn't get past, you know, maybe some of the bluster, whatever, like they don't get it. And fast forward in this Super Bowl, which was in Miami, by the way, and the Dolphins, right? Our firm, VaynerMedia, had more Super Bowl ads than any other firm in the country. So, you know, for those of you out there, you can kind of kind of trust your instincts, especially if you have good good instincts around what makes people great, and try to block out the noise of the haters.
0: I was going to save this question for later, but something that's been resonating with me in my own entrepreneurship journey is an expression I keep hearing: "Is you you bet on the jockey and not the horse." Yeah. Is Gary, one of your best jockey bets you've had?
1: Yeah, Jack Gary. <laughs> Definitely, definitely. I'm not calling you a horse, Gary, or a jockey. No, 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 no. It's you know, it's interesting. Uh, I always say, oh, it's a cliche, but things are cliches for a reason, right? Like in fact, yeah, that's, I, that's, whenever that's a cliche
0: too, yeah. right? Well, I was gonna say, but it's
1: <laughs> right, I was gonna say it's a cliche to talk about cliches, but Gary is a great bet. Also, another kid named Jesse Darris is a as a young guy I backed uh, NPR. We created a PR firm called Darris, rep- probably number one firm representing direct to consumer businesses in the country. Like, I don't. Know. And what I love about it like I think one of the things that have made me very successful in my twenties and thirties, when I was sort of emotionally broken and had been, my mom died the first day Giuliani became press secretary. Like, like I was very fractured by the time nine 11 happened and it allowed no room for healing. Right. Like in that phase of my life, I, I couldn't trust anybody in this world. Like it was all on me to get myself out of poverty. Everyone, everyone, everyone kind of did leave me, let me down to be honest, like society didn't step in. We didn't have any health care. You know, I sort of was alone uh, with her in the the house. My point is, professionally, that's only going to take you so far. If you're a lone wolf, you can only get so far in your own skills. And not everybody is your implement where you just direct them to do what you want. If you really want to create operating leverage out of life and and fulfill your wildest dreams, find people who are better than you to draft behind and enjoy the wonder of discovery of saying like, wow, you're better than me. I have more room to grow because there's not a ceiling on my head. And I love meeting people like a Gary thinking like, wow, you really have, you are so self-possessed. It's not an act. You actually love yourself deeply and you have some great gifts and Jesse was great. So I have, the reason for my success is I transitioned from a lone wolf to somebody who really looked to draft behind other people and submit to their greatness and maybe Find something where I could buttress them. Does that make sense? Everyone has a vulnerability, a flank that's left uncovered. If I could buttress them and if I could cover a flank, then I could maybe contribute to their success, but also submit to their greatness. And I love that more than I love that more than being you know great myself, right? I love discovering something better.
0: I'm gonna pause on that because that just sunk in so deep. And thank you for sharing that. Like it, it just switched something in my mind. So thank you.
1: Oh, thank you for sharing that oh. with
0: me today. That that really did. I got to ask this last question. What do you dislike the most about working with Gary? What is the biggest thorn in your side? Does he get seasick uh, on that boat or is he okay on the boat? Okay.
1: Great. You know what? I, you know, it's, it's, it's interesting. I, this is an unlitigated issue in my head. I'm not sure what's right. What's who's right or wrong. I'd find that Gary has a remarkable, we can screw something up royally, and, I will agonize as to why I always want to understand why I get things wrong. Cause it's a little bit shot. Like, wait, I thought I had that right. And I also want to course correct for the next time. So I spend probably a little more energy than necessary auditing. Gary will be like, whatever. <laughs> I'm glad we got that wrong because something better is going to happen. And so there are times when I'm like, aren't, shouldn't we be a little more reflective of like, like what happened it's there? A good approach.
0: It's a different way. That's your yin and yang, right? Isn't that your yin and yang with Gary? Like, isn't that the balance what makes you two together stronger?
1: Also take a step back. Think about it. Kind of makes sense. You have a guy who's putting himself out in front of the entire world, surrounded by haters all the time who want to dismiss him and, oh, it's not authentic, right? If he wasn't built that way, he couldn't be who he was. And by the way, this is how God made me. I am, you know, crazy reflective. My mind is on fire. I cannot stop. I'm always coming up with a new idea. And And I, unfortunately, I agonized and i and i'm hard on myself right but that's just what it's what makes me who i am and so i've i've learned to admire that about him and recognize that that's what he needs to be and understand this is who i need to be
0: perfect amazing i love it we're done with gary let's talk shark tank for a minute i got i got to hit my check marks here so true entrepreneurship so we got Cuban, Damon, wonderful, Lori, Barbara, Robert, right? Is there one quality that you could say, the one core quality despite all their, you know, all their different personality traits and attributes and everything, is there one quality that every single one of them, including yourself, have in spades?
1: I, that's a great question. I think um, a little bit of defiance. Like, you can come at them, you can come at me, but you better make sure that blow keeps me down because if not, I'm going to get right back up and come after you really hard. There's a, there's a defiance. It's a
0: queen side t- of you too, man.
1: Yeah, it is. But I think you find, look, I would say that you have you have one job that you wake up with in the morning that you cannot outsource to your mother, to your spouse, and that is to love yourself. It sounds like, you know, gobbledygook, but it's actually really true. Think about it intellectually. If not you, then who? And I find that those have mastered, with even a touch of defiance, the ability to love themselves unquestionably. And 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 that steals them for the journey. So I'd say probably defiance.
0: Awesome. And what shark do you feel most aligned with from a Business investment mindset.
1: Wow, that's a great question. You know, I would say none of them because they're all running. They're all running a different play. You know, and 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 I mean, Lori is an incredible inventor who is just like making product, and she's really in the weeds. And I would say probably she's she's just so deep in there. And you know, Robert Herkovic is this delightful, empathetic, you know, leader. Cuban is a is a giant. The you know the emperor. You know, like it's just it's, it's all. <laughs> But I, I enjoy pieces of them all. Damon, and I hang out with, we go fishing. Kevin O'Leary is living his best life. I'd say I probably- He's a sick guitar
0: him. player also. He's an amazing guitar player.
1: Well, one look you know the thing I love about Kevin, I, I, I admire people have a well-curated life for their own- Wine. That are multi dimensional, right? I mean, everybody listening there out there, like take time to curate your life and make it multidimensional because you'll be a lot happier in the end and cultivate those interests. Like I never did until I like, hit my 40s and I still feel like I don't have enough. Kevin is wine and watches and like selling steaks and cooking steaks and making money and like, and giving it, telling it like it is. So I kind of admire the way he's curated his life. And I admire the way he uh, doesn't bullshit, waste people's time. It's kind of, kind of amazing. So I take a little bit from everybody.
0: That's interesting. And you brought up something I really didn't plan on asking, but what's your biggest regret? What's your biggest regret in life?
1: What is my,
0: cause I heard something, I, I heard something in there. you like, you said you hit your forties and you're talking about O'Leary, what he, what he's done. And, like, I mean, is there something that you feel like you missed out on or you don't look back like that?
1: Uh, I don't have many because I'm pretty intentional. Uh, many huge regrets. The regrets I have are little moments with the children where I got it wrong, probably. Like, they make me cringe. You're learning, though, as a parent? Isn't like. They not... still are enough to bring me to my knees. Like, yeah. I've and had those
0: moments, man. I've right? got an eight year old and a two year old. I've had them recently. You
1: know, like, you know, when you fail. <laughs> Like of course you know I went through divorce so there are moments where I'm like uh, you know there's those but those are probably my my biggest regrets but otherwise I I I don't I, I feel pretty good about the the choice I made you know and also you do the best you can at a moment in time like there wasn't time for hobbies unfortunately and like now I'm like all right let me become more more multidimensional
0: well what's your hobbies what do you like doing but <laughs> that's
1: a great question
0: yeah. For- I like building Legos. I've been a Lego maniac my whole life. I mean, I got to interview the head of Lego Social last week. It was like my favorite interview. It was great. I love Legos and I play with my kids all the time. It's my favorite thing in the world to do for the last 42 years of my life.
1: I'd say my number one hobby is uh as I dramatically lower the bar to travel so that I could have a little micro vacation sprinkled throughout my entire life all the time. So I'll give you an example. My wife who's a coolest person in the world and always like, just sure, whatever
0: Yeah, builder too. Right. I've seen her with that power drill on your Instagram.
1: (laughs) I had to go to a meeting in Slovenia randomly. And, and she was like, you know, I never been there. Like, why don't I, you know, meet you? But she's also very frugal. So, so we're at, we're, and I forgot to tell anybody this was going to happen. I was only in Slovenia for a day. She flies to Germany overnight so she can spend no money and get a connecting flight and like pay like 200 and then walks into the restaurant in Slovenia, and everyone's like, "Is it Sarah?" And I was like, "Oh, I forgot. We're gonna have a date night, you know, here." But she oh, was right. able to get the tickets on like your Flyer Miles. So, you, so you,
0: you had a date night
1: halfway around the world. Halfway around the world. And, I love it. And, and and so I would say, travels. Is that really count as a hobby? Maybe I am too one dimensional. You know, my hobby is, to be honest, I I I love putting myself in uncomfortable positions and living in this perpetual growth mindset. When I finished shark tank, it was one of the hardest, most uncomfortable things I've done being on set, whatever. And I remember talking to my wife, like after the first taping was over half day. And I was like, wow, that was the most uncomfortable thing I think I've ever done. And then I experienced a little bit of melancholy, like, huh. Hmm. So just to get to the point of that, I always ask myself the following question almost every week. What can I do today that I couldn't do yesterday? that brings me closer to tomorrow. When I say I couldn't do yesterday, I didn't either have the credentials, the experience, the entree to do what I want to do. That always forces me to live in a growth mindset. So as soon as I finished, you know, Shark Tank, I went through a couple of weeks of melancholy. It's like, I know, I always wanted to teach at the best place. Like I always wanted to be a professor. Like I'm going to go to Harvard, Harvard
0: man. So
1: that would be, yeah. And then, you know, worked <laughs> the, a year with my co-professor, Lunch Lessinger, and, and now we teach together at Harvard Business School. But that's, that's, awesome. that's That a hobby? That's a way of life, maybe. You know, I don't know. I dig it. I'm open minded, so give me suggestions about what else I should be doing.
0: Real quick, what's a favorite place you've ever traveled to? It's
1: a great question. Ireland. I love Ireland. On my list. On my list. I I brought my. I brought my son. My my trips with my kids have been so magical. Right. So I brought my son to Ireland, and he, you know, we took the red eye, and he. I thought he was sleeping in the back, and we were driving through the country, and I was looking at this, just thinking like. Oh, I cannot believe it actually it looks like I hear this look, look uh, voice in the back and it goes, Daddy, I didn't really think it would look like this. And I, it, was like, it was the same time as having that thought. And so Ireland, uh, I don't usually go to the back same place twice a lot, but I go to Ireland a lot. I'm fortunate to travel. I've been to China four times. I've been to Australia for 36 hours. I, I've been I was in Russia last uh, two years ago for the World Cup. I've been all have, over. Have Ireland, been, uh, Ireland is where my heart is. Have you been to Iceland? I love Iceland. I fell uh, in love with my wife in Iceland. And we, uh, you know, every year we get remarried for fun. She buys a new dress, like, you know, on, online, and we randomly, like, find a place. Last year was Madrid, uh, but Iceland is on the list. But Iceland was our first sort of trip. So I, I love yeah. it.
0: We did that last year. And I, I was looking over at back of the pictures, and I'm like, what? There's no place closer to what another planet looks like. It's, yeah. it's amazing. I
1: was just going to say, isn't it like you step foot on the moon? You're like, where, where is it?
0: It was unbelievable. I mean, it was yeah. it, was, it, was, it was, like you're, you're in glaciers. You're in the middle of nowhere. And for me, it was a, it was a moment to breathe. It was last November, almost a year ago. And I remember that was the last time I was able to breathe, to breathe. To I
1: was in November too. That's an interesting time. It's like it's oh, like oh, gorgeous, right? gorgeous. The sun goes down like four or five. You know, oh, Iceland. I stayed on a Ford. I don't know how to say that right. But it's
0: fjord. Right. Fjord. Fjord,
1: yeah. Iceland, anybody out there about Iceland, it's a short flight from, it's like five hours. Yeah, it's
0: five hours, and you, it, it's dark. Anyway, we'll, we'll get back to that. So, so you know, the purpose of the show, you know, the, the core of it, we're going to talk about tenacity for a quick second here when we bring it home. But I want to talk about how when how you hire. There are a couple of questions that are like Matt Higgins' signature interview questions when you're hiring somebody.
1: Oh, now they're going to know my signature. Oh, uh, well, listen,
0: that, it, that's how I draw. This is this is a lead gen
1: question Uh, you know i'd say most of my questions are designed to take a person outside themselves channel another person because i find you then they they don't want to they people don't want to lie when they're representing another person's viewpoint so what do i mean that i always ask somebody um you're not here anymore now you're your best friend i want your best friend to describe your entire quality all your qualities to me and i find people will they want to represent themselves accurately they don't want to lie on behalf of their friend you know this is really It's a
0: tricky question
1: it is a tricky question, and I also another question I ask: um, describe the time in your life professionally when you're at least uh, happy. Take me back to that moment, and I think when you do that, you end up getting a sense of what it takes to motivate somebody. Part of me, I think, an interview is a two-way street. I want to de-risk the decision for the other person too, because if they make the wrong call, I've made the wrong call, right? It's not just me picking the wrong hire. I want to give them as much data as humanly possible, so I want them to understand how I tick. So I need to get first like. Okay, and what situations are you do you thrive and what situations are you unhappy? So I could be honest with you and say, "Oh, that's what I'm like." You're actually about to walk into the wrong situation, you know, or vice versa. So I do a lot of head trippy type, you know, questions to be honest. They're all cerebral and psychological.
0: Well, that's what taps into different parts of the brain that A lot of people are used to using in the workplace, but that you need in the workplace. It's it's really but, that 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 that's a big one. And we're going to clip that one off cuz I think that's one, really
1: one. I'll give you one cuz it's everyone always gets the same answer, so it doesn't matter if I share. I always ask people If you were to die tomorrow, what's one thing you would regret having done, having not done? I always ask that question. And what's crazy, it's like survey says, remember the price is right? Survey says. Top three answers on the board. Well, what do you think is the top answer? Skydiving. Well, interesting. So it not quite skydiving, but travel is the number one. More travel. No matter if you uh, you are 22 or you are 52, everyone wants to be somewhere else which I don't know if that's a longing for escapism or an imagining of a better life, but everyone always says travel
0: experiences, adventure. So, so let's, let's, let's bring it home here. This show for me, this is episode It's going to be episode 113. I've done 113 of these shows. I've done 70 live shows in the last two years. This is my masterclass, Matt. I get to talk to amazing experts like yourself. And this is my favorite question There's a couple more to wrap it up with, but what is the single greatest piece of advice that you've ever received that you take action on every single day of your life.
1: Oh, I love that. Um, I would say it's be an agent in your own rescue. And I remember actually uh, when I was sort of lamenting a situation or felt like I was out of control and he said, <laughs> this guy would say, "Was listen, all right, you got to be an agent in your own rescue. You got to take custody of your life. <laughs> you know? And I was like, you're right, right? It sort of it just made me think. Like, always be at the helm. At the end of the day, never, 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 never surrender your agency.
0: And what would you say is your greatest professional accomplishment?
1: My greatest professional accomplishment, I think it was probably navigating nine eleven post nine eleven. Like that was really hard. I mean, that, that was the hard. That's interesting.
0: Thing. That was twenty years ago. And think about what you've accomplished on on paper since then. Yeah. Like financially, like that wasn't a financial like no, that like, no, not that in that was, sense at all.
1: That was an impossible mandate that you had to just endorse so much. I mean, think about it. Like, I still haven't fully come to terms with the the death that I witnessed. You know, I was standing on these technologies, people are jumping. You know, I can't even comprehend it still to this day. So I think to kind of and my mother had just died to hold it together and work with Kevin Rampy, all these great people that I still feel indebted to. Yeah, that's interesting. You're right that I but I'm, it's 20 years later, and I've done all these other things, Shark Bank, whatever. Yeah, yeah, that There's, probably won't. That might, never, that might never change. You might ask me that 20 years from now. I might still be the oh, same. I, lo-
0: I, I love it. And, you know, you said recently in an interview, I, I was watching it with uh, Bar founder Daniel Bitsky. You said, quote, at 16, you learned every crisis opens up an aperture into a parallel universe where things are being done differently and better and get excited. So with that being said, Matt please share with us one personal silver lining and one professional silver lining that you've experienced over the last eight months, well, nine months during the pandemic.
1: Well, the, 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 the personal silver lining has, I mean, I would never give up these months around my children, uh, you know, for anything. So the ability to, I think, I think, a, a lot of parents probably struggle with this man or woman with the choices you have to make to try to balance the pressure you have professionally. And, you know, if you were blessed enough to be to have an office job where you had the freedom to now work from home, and I know a lot of people don't, I think about those people all the time because I imagine if this had happened 20 years ago and I was still taking care of my mom, how desperate I would be to be on the front line. But to be blessed enough to be home that if you were finally given permission to be all in on your family while proving that you could still juggle your job, like that never would have happened unless this happened. And as a result, we're never going back fully to the way it was before. We're never gonna completely compromise all of our our personal values because we don't need to. So I'd say that was number one. And then professionally, all the friction that was gratuitous, unnecessary, that we just submitted to because everyone submitted to it, the friction of like, why do I have to travel across the country to go do a deal with you when I could do it on Zoom? Like. Why, 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 why does my, why does my entire workforce need to work in the same location when I can assemble great people like virtually like the massive amounts of friction have been eliminated from the system. I think the next 10 years are going to be the greatest period of innovation that we have ever experienced in our lifetime. And I don't know what the corollary but it's like a combination of the roaring twenties and the, and the booming internet of the, of the, of the late nineties. Like, because the bar to starting a business has been dramatically lowered none of us are going to say, okay, I'll go back on a plane again and do work travel that has no point. Like it's going to have to be really, really accretive to, you know, get back on the train. Like, so i mean, a plane rather. So everything becomes that much more efficient. And so I think this is going to be a spectacular period of innovation and, and growth.
0: I love it. I love that perspective. And last but not least, you know, taking it back to those tough days of your childhood in Queens, single parent, your mother's sick, nine eleven, she passes, You got to step up you got to reach down deep inside and harness that inner tenacity that you have in spades, man, and you grow and you build, and you have these incredible career and life journey and the ups and downs that it takes. Right. And looking back and you want to show gratitude and thankful for everything that you do, Matt Higgins, what is your North star? What is your compass? Hmm.
1: So, so I'm glad you set it up that going back to that day when I was 16, I witnessed up close um, powerlessness and what happens when you are powerless to change your circumstances and you are so desperate, you are sick, you're trying to raise kids, you have no money, you have no healthcare, and you slowly do everything you can to try to fight out of that, but it's just quicksand and you're sinking and you die. I watched my parent go through that journey and I learned the hard way the power of intervention that if somebody had just sort of reached in when I was a nine-year-old kid and you know, 15 year old kid and she, how would it change the trajectory of her life and a person who had a lot to offer the universe who was incredibly smart would have been able to make a contribution. So the highest and best use of your time and energy and money after you take care of your basic needs is to ameliorate suffering of another. And so that is my North star. It's not like I want to save humanity, but when I get excited, I imagine you know me further down the road where it's being redistributed. And when I say it, I don't know what it is, power, influence, money, empathy, because think about all the desperate people out there and what an impact it would make if you would just reach into their life. And so I just try not to stray too far from that little, even though it's very painful to think about, but it's so also, I feel like I glimpsed what it's all about, if that makes sense. And so I'm always trying to go back to that place. That's my North Star.
0: Wow. Thank you, Matt. Thank you so much for spending some time with us this morning and everyone listening. I really, truly hope that let this episode sink in. There's golden, dim mountains and you got to dig it out. It's all, it's all there for you. Matt, where could folks find you? Where could they connect with you? Where could they learn oh, I really
1: more? Want to thank you, by the way. Thank you for bringing it out. Yeah, you have a, you have a nice tender, sweet way about you. Just want to give you a big hug right now. Uh, That's the first it,
0: time anyone's ever said that after a show. I appreciate that.
1: Yeah, you got a sweet way about you and you deserve only good things. Um, you, I spent a lot of time on LinkedIn. You could find me on LinkedIn, Matt Higgins, and and less time on Instagram just because I just like the engagement on LinkedIn. So find me there.
0: That's awesome. And everyone joining us today, remember, you know where to find us, thepodcast.com, all the social media channels. Remember, take care of each other, wash your hands, stay six feet apart, and catch us next week for another great episode of The Podcast. Wisdom is forever, but for us, it's time to go.